Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Kaunas, Lithuania, 1940. July in Kaunas is warm, pleasant. It could almost be like home if Chiune closed his eyes and imagined Japanese architecture rather than Lithuanian. It is beautiful here, Yukiko says, almost every morning as she opens the curtains to let the light flood the house. But one morning, when she opens the curtains, she gasps. Chiuni, come here quickly. Hundreds of people, mostly men, crowd outside their front gate. They look bedraggled, harrowed, enough to form an army battalion. But they do not look like soldiers. What are they doing? Yukiko murmurs to him. I will take care of it, he assures her, pressing his hand on her shoulder. She lays her hand over his and squeezes before nodding. As she leaves the room, he stills himself and opens the door. The noise outside of people talking is low, urgent, frenzied, like cicadas in the summer months. They all fall silent as he closes the door behind him. Excuse me, he says in Lithuanian to the nearest man. May I ask what you are all doing? Please, the man says, you must help us. He introduces himself as Zorach Wahafti and a man beside him as Nathan Butworth. They are from the Mir Yeshiva, a Jewish learning centre that has moved from one European city to another as the Nazis progressed. They explain the plight of the Jewish refugees pouring into the country from Poland. They have nowhere else to go but Lithuania is barely safer than home. Anyone can see the violence brewing. It seems there is nowhere in Europe that is safe for the Jewish people. Their desperation is palpable. He knows that they tell the truth. He has seen it on the streets, the way the locals find any excuse to beat the Jewish. He and Yakipo have changed the routes they take to the market, hoping to avoid exposing their sons to it. But it is clear it is no longer something they can ignore. Linda Margolin Royal first began writing a family story as a screenplay, and from this grew her first novel, The Star on the Grave. Linda, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. The Star on the Grave begins in the town of Kaunas in Lithuania in 1940, in the early stages of World War II. What was the situation for Jewish refugees at that time and in that place? It was a dire situation for every Jew in Europe in 1940. Um, Lithuania, historically, when we look back, actually was one of the worst perpetrators. They didn't even need the Nazi regime to aid and abet in their persecution of Jews. So Jews were fleeing across the border from Poland to Lithuania. A lot of them, like my protagonist's grandmother, Felka, and her father, Michael, were in Warsaw and Michael's father, Mietek, was actually serving in the Polish army, which a lot of them were. And as was the case then, a lot of them called for their families to come and meet them in Lithuania because they thought it might have been safer and a means of escape. The Russians had not yet entered Lithuania and annexed it, but that was imminent and that happened around about August, September. I think it was August of uh, 1940. 
The man at the centre of this story is Chiyune Sugihara. Who was Chiyune Sugihara and what is he doing on a train in Lithuania in 1940? Chiyune Sugihara was a Japanese diplomat who was stationed in Kaunas in Lithuania in 1938 um, when war was imminent because the Germans and the Japanese were allies. And so under the guise of a consul, he was stationed there actually as a spy to monitor troop movements um, across the borders of Germany and Russia. So what was he doing there? Yes, good question. I mean, he was stationed in a little consulate in Kaunas in Lithuania. And he was fluent in Russian because he had defied his father's instructions to study medicine. He decided he wanted to be in the diplomatic corps. And so he went to study in Harbin in his earlier years. And he demonstrated a prowess for languages, but also he was very good at what he did. And so uh, the Japanese sent him to Kaunas. What an unusual figure, too, because he was a baptised Christian. Yes, he was. He was a gentleman that history shows was going to defy authority on many occasions. Um, firstly, defying his father. Rumour has it, and I tried to verify this with his son, Nobuki, who's still alive, that he left the entrance paper to the medical faculty blank and walked out and just left home and went to Harbin. So after he demonstrated that he was uh, very good at uh, diplomatic relations and Russian and he, in Harbin, the government put him in charge of the Manchurian Railway Project. Um, he was very successful in brokering that. But when he saw that the Japanese were maltreating the Chinese locals, he quit. So he wasn't your typical Japanese gentleman who was very low-key and, um, and followed instruction very well. So that included uh, marrying a... Catholic woman, or she might have been Russian Orthodox, and, and converting to Russian Orthodox while he was in Harbin. He actually divorced her and returned to Japan and then soon after met his Japanese wife, Yukiko. And of course, he was the man who facilitated the escape of Jewish refugees from Lithuania. What kind of risks was he taking personally in order to do that? From what I understand, enormous risks. I mean, he had a young family of boys. Um, Germany and Japan were allies. And this was a man that asked the Japanese government when these desperate refugees landed up on his doorstep one morning, hundreds of them uh, swarming outside the consulate uh, because rumour got out that two refugees had obtained transit visas from this gentleman. He took it upon himself to start illegally issuing transit visas without permission from his government, which I would have thought in those days was a big no-no. Um, you don't say no to Hitler and you don't go against the Japanese. And so um, enormous risk. Yeah, enormous risk. And were there consequences for him? Yes, huge consequences. So um, when the Russians finally entered Lithuania and annexed, he was thrown out and ordered back to Berlin, where he reported back and was stationed in various countries. One of the, the last one was Bucharest, Romania. He ended up for 18 months in a prisoner of war camp with his children. And then after 18 months after the war finished, he went back to Japan. He was quietly dismissed without without reason, I believe. He always thought the reason was that he had asked them three times for permission to issue visas to these desperate people. And three times the instructions came back under no circumstances are you to issue visas to these people. In fact, there's, there's a list like Schindler's list. There is a Sugihara list of visa recipients. 
Now, the story moves from Lithuania in 1940 to Sydney in 1968. It's a period of enormous social and political change. And we meet Rachel Margol. Rachel comes across as somehow sort of restless, not completely at peace with herself. Where is she in her life and what is she looking for? So Rachel is a 21-year-old nurse who hasn't had terribly much direction. Her mother died when she was quite young. She's quite distanced from her father. She's an only child. She's not sure why there's a bit of a disconnect between her and her father. She's very close to her grandmother, Felpa, who is one of the main characters, quite a vivacious, vibrant woman and very loving. But there's something missing for Rachel. And she meets and falls in love with the doctor who is Greek Orthodox, and uh, they get engaged. And on their engagement, alarm bells start ringing for her grandmother. That sets the whole story in motion because there's secrets that get revealed along the way. I won't do a spoiler, but um, this causes her to be quite restless and not sure of where she belongs in the world. And she feels she needs to go on a journey towards some kind of understanding and closure. Let's talk about Felka, very interesting character, very strong, even brash at times, I would say, someone who doesn't hesitate to say what they think. But she has a special relationship with Rachel Margol. Tell me about Felka and that relationship. Felka is very much drawn from life. My grandmother was larger than life, even though she was only very small, like me, little people. Um, but she was very big in personality and very flamboyant, dynamic, loving um, she lived for her grandchildren. I have two siblings, although I've only written about me or a version of me. I was a very, very small child in 1968. And so Felka just puts all the trauma behind or tries to and lives through Rachel. What she then soon realises when Rachel gets engaged is it's all falling apart because her trauma starts to come back. Then she realises that her parents and uncles and aunties and cousins who were all exterminated in concentration camps would be turning in their graves thinking, you survived, um, you prevailed. Why on earth would you let your granddaughter um, not be true to her faith and carry on as a proud Jewess? Now, of course, Felka comes up with a proposal. She's not well herself, but she proposes a trip to Japan, a reunion. That comes as a real surprise to Rachel. Rachel discovers from her grandmother inadvertently that um, the man who saved their lives and is the reason why they're in Australia and we're in Japan is uh, Chiyune Sugihara. He's been located by a survivor living in Moscow and there is to be a reunion of survivors in Japan to celebrate life and to thank the man to whom they all owe theirs. Clearly there's been a lot of research into this project. Has this research and, and the writing of this novel been a quest for identity for you and your family? This is a very personal story. How has it affected you? Has it given greater context to your own life, your own identity? Yeah, interestingly enough, writing the characters, particularly Michael and Felta, I mean, I knew my father and my grandmother, but the more I wrote about them, although my father is not true to the character of my father, I fictionalised him somewhat. Um, I really got a deep understanding of the trauma they were carrying and how that was passed on to me as generational trauma in the way I manage my world and my children and everything I do, really. Uh, it was very, very interesting in that my grandmother was quite obsessive-compulsive 
And I just took it as quirkiness when I was a youth and in my 20s. But the more I wrote about it and then took my characters to therapy, which I actually did, I employed a therapist who was a, a, special, a specialist in childhood trauma to make sure I was writing as authentically and accurately as possible, I realised that she was carrying this trauma and um, because she had OCD, that was her way of demonstrating to herself and keeping her her outside world normal and organised because there was so much disorganisation and chaos within her that she needed to contain and push down. Similarly with my father, that he was controlled, gruff, saddened and distant because he didn't have the capacity to show emotion and affection because of his trauma. And that, from my understanding and talking to lots of survivors, is the way they operated as well. They just didn't have the capacity to demonstrate emotion. There's a very interesting thing comes out of uh, Felker's behaviour, which is her attitude to soap. The thing is, a lot of people who went through the Holocaust had stories of wanting to be clean because they didn't have any sanitary, the sanitary conditions were non-existent in concentration camps and in the in the ghettos, particularly in the Minnesota ghetto. And so um, they had a need to be clean and stay clean. And I even remember my late mother who didn't go through the Holocaust, but one of her cousins who did came to, to live with her in London, um, that she had to keep every little morsel of soap because she remembers her cousin talking about the fact that all she wished for all day was a crust of bread and a sliver of soap. And so I thought I'd just write that in as an extra layer to write the complexity of, um, of trauma. We've talked about the people that made it, people that escaped the Holocaust, and your story relates all the difficulties and the challenges around escaping the Holocaust. But there are many more from your extended family who didn't make it. What has your research unearthed about those who were left behind? Oh, boy. Um, terrible conditions, terrible, terrible conditions. Uh, they were herded into ghettos wherever they were, whatever small towns or in Warsaw. I've got photos that were sent out from my great-grandparents to my grandparents in Japan um, wearing the all-too-familiar armbands with the Star of David to identify them as Jewish. They had very little food. They weren't allowed to work. They were crowded into rooms, one-bedroom apartments with five or six families. They were rat-infested, lice-infested. There, no, there was no sanitation. They were walled off from the outside world. And, uh, yeah, uh, pretty much like you see in Shingi's list, which is, is very accurate, that, you know, German shepherds, um, vicious German shepherds and, and guards beating them. And if they, if they were lucky enough to die before they went to the concentration camps, which my great-grandfather was, um, it is written in the book that he did actually get hit over the head by a, a German soldier with the butt of his rifle and he died where, his, where he fell. That was January 1942. Um, and that was lucky because for the rest of them, it was a very tragic end. Clearly the story in A Star on the Grave bears a direct relationship to your own family history, your own story. You could have written this story as non-fiction, a purely factual account, but you've chosen to write a fictionalised account. Why so? Um, this project started as a movie venture about 10 years ago. Uh, my obvious instinct, I, I come from an advertising background and therefore um, I'm used to writing TV commercials. And so I thought, oh, I can write a one-minute TV commercial. Surely I can write a, a movie. Well, 
<laughs> I was a little bit naive. And so I did various uh, movie courses and read every book on how to write a screenplay and did a lot of research and um, realised along the way there were a lot of documentaries when I did research, a lot of docos about Juni Sugihara. And I thought, there's so many documentaries. Why doesn't anybody know about this guy? And there's books and things. And then came to understand that when Schindler came out um, and Spielberg made him famous, that's because it was a form of entertainment and mass entertainment. And really on the weekends, people don't really want to walk into a museum or go and research a documentary or read a book on somebody. They want light entertainment, light or heavy, but they want to be entertained. It's the way of educating. And whether we learn about Hitler or we learn about uh, the sexual revolution or the Vietnam War or anything else that I've written about, invariably most of us have been exposed via the cinema and therefore we know a little bit about it. And if we choose to go and educate ourselves more then we can look it up on YouTube or, or you know, Wikipedia or whatever, or go to a museum, but also cinema and books have the reach that nothing else can have. I mean, everyone has access to a book. Linda, thanks so much for bringing this story to light, the story of Chihune Sugahara, and thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Pleasure. I've been talking to Linda Margolin Royal about her first novel, The Star on the Grave. It's published by a firm, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People gift card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.